Welcome back to the Reset Rebel podcast with me, Joe Yule. And we are currently in the dizzy aftermath of what was a sold out TEDx Dot Villa this week. And I'm still kind of coming down, really, and um, gently landing back on planet Earth. But before he leaves the island, I'm very, very happy to say I have managed to persuade one of the speakers to join me today for the episode. And that is a man who grew up on Ibiza. Um, He was playing gigs on the island for many, many years, almost two decades before departing to Australia and studying musicology. And he kind of witnessed, you know, the effects of music on the dance floor Uh, and decided to explore further. And since then, he's now set up a technology company, a music health business, exploring how music can literally save our lives. So I'm very happy and excited to be uh, joined by Mr. Nick Johnson. Hello, hello. Thank you for coming over to my house this afternoon (laughs) when we're both absolutely exhausted. It's great to be here. And what a spot. Indeed, indeed. So how are you feeling after giving your very first TEDx talk? Well, I think it is, like you said, uh, feeling a little bit tired still, a little bit exhausted from the aftermath. But it was a really great experience. Met a a really great group of people. That's probably the best takeaway from this. Aside from doing the talk, meeting great humans. What would you, how would you describe the day itself uh, full on is probably the best way to describe it. Uh, obviously an early start for all of us and it was just really lovely to see everyone do their talk. Uh, there were some more nerves in, in some than others, but you know, seeing them get through it and do really well, that was really exciting. And then just be able to talk with the audience as well throughout the day. That was really interesting, you know, before my talk and then after my talk, you know, there's a lot of questions about how does it all work? And, uh, you know, it was, yeah, it was really exciting. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. So I got to do it. I got to tick that box. And uh, I felt it was really good. I mean, what is it about TEDx that perhaps drew you um, to that platform specifically? Uh, I've always been a firm believer of education online. Uh, just because of my own journey. So I've taught myself a lot of things by just going online and researching. And so TED in general has been uh, a massive resource of mine over the years. And I've listened to many, many, many of the TED Talks. So it's, it's always been inspiring for me to see people talk about what they love and do it in a way that's really interesting and compelling. So... um. Yeah, that just really excited me and the ability to be able to share my story and talk about what I'm passionate about. That's a real opportunity. And the fact that I could do that in the place where I grew up, it's just really cool. I mean, you traveled all the way from Sydney to do this, which is kind of, you know, (laughs) kind of insane, to be honest. Yeah, jet lag's fun. Uh, You know, I... Luckily for me, timing-wise, I could combine it with a bunch of other things that I needed to do in Europe. But yeah, it's a long trip, uh, no doubt. But I wouldn't have had it any other way. It was really fun. It was worth it. Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, I I know we shouldn't have favourites, but, you know, who was your favourite talk or your speaker on the day other than, uh, obviously, your own wonderful talk, (laughs) which I thoroughly enjoyed. And um, also, you know, kind of coaching you and and kind of working with you from afar over Zoom in the run-up for what the last sort of six months has been you know quite a journey but I think it's kind of intriguing I guess a lot of people couldn't actually make it Um, and those talks are going to be online in the not too distant future over the coming weeks and months we'll be filtering them out but I just wonder you know was there any specific talk that really resonated for you more than most? Yeah unfortunately I wasn't able to see all of them because of my own schedule and having to prepare and everything else and being backstage but 
uh, on the day, there were three that really uh, I really enjoyed because of the content, but also just the way they were presented. I just thought it was really uh, wonderful to see. So there was one by Ruth, obviously, talking about uh, sex, which was just a lot of fun, but I just thought the way she presented it was really exciting. Uh, I think there was this um, talk by Marina, which I just think genuinely she had the most wonderful stage presence. It was a lot of fun and just entertaining all the way through. And then I will admit on the podcast, uh, Holiday made me cry. Her talk was just very powerful. But more than anything, I think she delivered it in a way that was just, to me, it was close to perfection. It was really, really powerful. And I was excited for all three of them because I could also see at the end how happy and relieved they were. So, yeah, amazing talks. Amazing talks. Mm. It's interesting you say that about Holiday. Obviously, she was uh, on the podcast just last week. And, yeah, I had the exact same reaction. In fact, there were two talks that made me cry. um, And that was definitely one of them. And I think, yeah, there's something about the way that she managed to pull off, yeah, the entire performance, really. I guess it was a performance at the end of the day. And it felt very dramatic in terms of the kind of build up to her journey of you know taking us through those signposts I guess to lead us towards the end idea of using grief as activism and I just yeah she just did it unbelievably well in a way that was almost you know a kind of award-winning I thought actually uh, if I'm honest I was I was extremely impressed um so yeah there's something very very special about the way that she um she managed to get that together I'm Thank you again, you know, so much for making the time to, to, to get together in, in the aftermath of all of that, because I know we're both feeling a little bit weary. Um, but I'd love to kind of hear a little bit more about your experience growing up on Ibiza, because I know you left more than a decade ago. I've been here for a decade, so we almost crossed paths, but not quite. But, you know, what was it like kind of growing up and being at school here and, you know, getting into DJing from such a young age? Well, it's a question I get asked a lot obviously around the world, what's growing up in Ibiza like. And in many ways, in the wintertime in particular, it's like growing up in any other small town. Because when I did grow up here, it was actually still a small town. I think the total island count was about 120 or 150,000 people uh, in the winter months. Obviously in the summer that went up over a million. And uh, it was me and my mom. And it was very much just, you know, work hard, take it easy during the winters. And then in the summers for me, when I was at that age, it was obviously DJing all the time and pretty much out all the time for work, I should stress. Uh, Just continuously busy. But it was great growing up here. Uh, I've got friends for life from my childhood, uh, all from different walks of life, which is really interesting. So I'm very fortunate that whenever I travel around the world... I have friends everywhere because of the people that I met here. And that's, I think, probably one of the most powerful takeaways um, from me growing up here. Uh, I never was into school, so that was always a struggle. Even here, you know, you still have to go to school as a child. And I just, I was bored with school, to be honest. It wasn't for me. I had bigger things and bigger admissions, I think, than what was in the, the books. Um, but yeah, it was just really, really nice. It was interesting for me as well, because even though I grew up here, I was always uh, considered somewhat as, as a foreigner. Uh, they even have a name for me, which is a Giri Thinko. It's a foreign local. And that was interesting growing up as a teenager, you know, dealing with that and the languages. Um, I grew up with a lot of uh, Ibi Thinko friends. So there was also that language, which I never quite mastered. I understand it. I couldn't really speak it. So that always led to really interesting conversations. Um, I remember my first kiss. Somebody asked me for a kiss and I didn't know what they were saying. So I thought they were asking about food. So, you know, there's a million stories like that. Very confusing. Uh, And then, you know, I started with music very young. At 14, I decided I wanted to be a DJ and this was really the mecca for it. I used to sneak into the clubs very young. I had the benefit of the the Dutch genes that I was 
pretty much the same height that I am now. And so the bouncers would sort of just look the other way. And I got to see the best of the best from day one. And that really was my school, if you will, to learn how to DJ in front of a crowd, what type of music to play. And I became obsessed with it. So for two years until I was 16, that's pretty much all I did. Go to school, come home, DJ, practice, practice, practice. And then when I was a DJ, the summers were a lot of fun. As a 16, 17, and 18-year-old, you have a lot more energy than I do now. So going out all day uh, and all night and working was just really easy and, and exciting. What was it that made you want to be a DJ? Um, I've talked about this not too often, actually, but it was really... Uh, I started doing stuff with music from a very young age. I uh, started playing instruments when I was about seven or eight. Went to music school, classically trained, uh, but very quickly realized I had massive stage fright, so I didn't want to actually perform. Uh, I did one show with a band, and that was my last, playing guitar. And the reason I loved music so much is, I talk about this in my TED Talk as well, is just um, in my childhood, when I had very difficult moments, music helped me through it. And I didn't realize it, that until later. And when I did realize that, I thought, if that can help me, then what if I could play music and help others in a really fun way? And that's really what I wanted to do as a DJ, which was find music that I thought would be really, really cool and play that for other people to give them that sense of um, emotional outlet and joy that I had felt with music for so long. That was really the instigator for it, which was crazy considering I had stage fright uh, because, you know, you're a DJ and standing in front of a whole bunch of strangers. But somehow I felt safety in uh, playing music of other people that I thought was really, really good. That was like my barrier to say, it's not about me, it's about this music that I'm presenting to you. And yeah, it just, it gave me a tremendous amount of joy. And there's many, many nights and days that I've had interactions with people that were just incredibly memorable that still give me goosebumps when I think about them. I mean, I guess, you know, space only closed down in the last five years, but that was still going strong when you left. Was that one of those places that you kind of spent a lot of time? Absolutely. Pretty much uh, from day one, Pasha and Space were my favorite clubs. Uh, space was definitely more the during the day venue. And then the nighttime glamour was Pasha for me. But yeah, I, I spent many a day um, at Space. And it's also where I got to see some of the best sets uh, ever. I remember one time, I think I must have been 15 it was on the Sunset Terrace of Space when it was still uh, not covered. And it was Louis Vega and Kenny Dope playing back-to-back. -back. That was all vinyl back in the day. So they used to have uh, roadies with them that would carry their vinyl bags because they would have about eight or nine of them. It was ridiculous. And they were, they were the biggest guys, and the DJs themselves are not that big. So it was always a very funny scene. But I remember they did a set in space that was, I think, six or seven hours back to back. And that blew me away. That taught me something new about mixing, about how you could mix different songs together. And just anecdotally, many, many years later, uh, 15 years later, in fact, Louis Vega was stood in the corner of the funky room where I was a resident um, with his eyes closed in the DJ booth, tapping to the music and enjoying himself for hours and that was kind of full circle for me to you know remember that moment where I was watching them that was a real trigger for me to become in my head the best DJ and uh, many years later there they were listening to me that was cool wow well how easy was it to kind of integrate into that scene and to get you know to get gigs at Pasha at how old <laughs> the short answer is it wasn't easy for many reasons my first ever gig was for the Pasha group, but I played as a 16-year-old in their clothing store in Ibiza town, which at the time had a DJ. And it was actually one of the most amazing gigs because at that time, in the summer months, you would have the promo people from the labels come around and give out 
vinyl to the DJs to rate, uh, to score the tracks and give feedback. And because I was in that place, uh, they would always start with me. I was the first one they'd get to. So I would get about 100 promo vinyls a week on average in the summer months, which was just an obscene amount of music. Uh, but it was amazing. I got, you know, all the hits at those times. Like if you think about a typical summer hit from back in the day, Shakedown at Night, that was a promo that I got at the start of the season. I was like, oh, this could be a tune. And it turned out to be one of the biggest hits in dance music. So just things like that was really, really exciting. But was it easy? Absolutely not. One, because I grew up here, so there was this innate thing of it's too obvious if we give him the job. Uh, and then obviously there's the competition. You know, Everyone wanted to be a DJ in Ibiza. And why was I better than everyone else? So I really had to grind it out for many, many years doing a lot of gigs that weren't necessarily that much fun. But uh, I was persistent and then I was there at the right time one night when another DJ wasn't doing so well and I happened to have my music with me and I took over the night and then they asked me to come back the next day and the next day and then I became a resident in Pasha. Alongside another of our previous podcast guests, Mr. Graham Sahara. The legendary Sahara, yes. So Graham Sahara and Willie Graff were uh, the two other residents in the funky room for the majority of the time that I was there. There was also some others um, that came and went. But between the three of us, we had some, uh, you know, truly amazing nights. And, uh, you know, we couldn't be more different, the three of us, which leads to very interesting moments in general. <laughs> So yeah, it was quite the experience. But the takeaway there as well was uh, having traveled the world as a DJ, playing in all these other places, that really was the best room for me for many reasons, but mostly because of the atmosphere. Nothing really topped it. I've been, I went to the opening of the Funky Room um, last year. God, I can't even believe it's a whole year ago that I was there. It feels like yesterday. Um, and, you know, Vaughan was there doing his, you know, usual kind of emceeing and singing and kind of like intermingling in the crowd and I mean the whole room has completely changed it's been refurbished it's been sort of um bouged if you like and it's yeah very high end um in terms of well the price list for a start but I guess that's always been that way but definitely you know the air conditioning and the general vibe in there is like I don't know it just feels um a bit more clinical somehow than than the way it used to be back in the day yeah I think that's I mean we often talk about oh back in the day it was different it was better it was this or it was that I think it just depends on the generations but for me I left just before uh, the club got acquired and then changed and I could kind of see that things were changing already progressively when I was there and it's not something that I necessarily wanted to be a part of uh, music changes, that's normal. Every generation listens to different things. But the vibe changing, that's something else. And that's, I think, just clubbing culture in general is moved into something else. Uh, I can't necessarily speak for it being better or worse. It's also, I'm at a different age. So the idea of me going out for 24 hours is just, that doesn't appeal to me at all. Uh, so it's, I think it's a combination of things, right? But there was a moment um, sort of halfway through my tenure in Pasha where everything just worked beautifully. There was, uh, in that particular club, in the main room, there was a particular sound. We had a different sound in the funky room, and it just worked. It would be packed every night. The energy and the vibe would be amazing. And so it was just easy and fun because people were there to have a good time and uh yeah when that started changing a little bit it kind of wore off for me pretty quickly mm. is so it's not owned by ricardo Aguil anymore no no uh i'm i'm not sure who owns it but it was bought by a, a big venture firm i believe mm. i didn't know that interesting i remember i was standing yeah out the front there about 
10 years ago when I first got here doing a piece for BBC Radio 1 on the um, prospection of the oil platform and there was a big protest night there and a party and I remember him just walking in and just that being the first time I'd ever clamped eyes on him so um, that always stuck in my mind as a moment and I was like oh my god that's the guy that owns Pasha but um, yeah. I mean he must have been in his 80s back then very interesting man I'd love to to record his story one day if I ever learned to speak perfect Spanish um, I think it's you know what I would love to to hear more of then is how you you know what was it that you witnessed on the dance floor that then you know kind of was the catalyst I suppose for for taking you to decide to study musicology what was it that you wanted to you know to learn or find out about music what was you know what was the thing that you kind of wanted to develop well there's a couple of things uh, just growing up and learning more about music and about myself I was just very intrigued so I was always reading what I could on the topic and as I got a bit older and was able to understand more things. I also studied sound engineering and some other things, uh, more technical things. But it was more my experience as a DJ, seeing what I saw on the dance floor and being able to take people on a journey and literally change the way they feel in the moment. I really wanted to understand more about what that was doing to the brain and you know, people feeling that sense of euphoria that you can sometimes get. Uh, yeah, I just started searching things online and then it was actually, funnily enough, the cover of a Prince album called Musicology, where I thought, oh, that's a really cool and weird name, typical Prince, of course. And then I looked that up and went, oh, this is actually, this is what I want to do. And so then I started finding more and more stuff about that and I haven't really looked back since. And what I was really interested in as a DJ was music taste because I was obviously always making assumptions about how I could get people to enjoy themselves with the music that I selected but I wanted to understand that if I know what they listen to what does that tell me about them as a person and how do I then help them find other things and I used to for years create playlists and uh, CDs compilations for others uh, for companies for venues so the more psychology I understood about it, the easier that was for me as well, because it's always a challenge to put together a playlist of a thousand songs. You run out of ideas pretty quickly, but if you start looking at it as a product and user personas, then actually you can find a lot more content that way. So there was that, and then there was the just curiosity of neuroscience and all that space. So I started reading up about that, and interestingly for me, not being from that world, Everything I read makes sense because I saw it on the dance floor. And so when when a scientist would talk about, you know, when you listen to this kind of music, you get a hit of dopamine. I was like, yeah, I've seen that a million times. I totally get what that means and I understand why then people do that. And it just snowballed. It, it became a bit of an obsession. And as I got older, I got more excited about that than anything else. So I wanted to then dive into the technology and see what I could do there because again I don't have a background in technology I remember I started my first tech company I had to literally google how to write a business plan and then I had to google what an algorithm was and you know 11 years later I'm proud to say that I've worked on some of the most sophisticated neural networks in music tech and that's just because of curiosity you talked in your um, TEDx speech about the limbic system, which, I mean, how, how is that affected by music? So our limbic system, which is part of the brain, uh, is responsible for processing our emotion and memory. And this is all part of our, um, and again, I'm not a neuroscientist, but this is part of our reptilian brain. So as our brain has evolved over years, it's become bigger and bigger which allows us to do more complex things. But the limbic system is still part of the original brain, if you will. And so it's very much just connected to the rest of our body. And the way music or sound in general impacts us is because it passes through our limbic system. So every sound that goes through our ears converts into an electric signal. 
is then sent to our brain for processing. It has to go through the limbic system. And so the limbic system then lets the body know whether this is fight or flight. Is it safe or not? And what's really interesting with music is that it does that too. So it immediately lets us know if this feels good or not. Um, but it also activates all the other areas of the brain at the same time. So it's just a really fascinating thing that the brain does when we listen to music. And as I found out when I was much younger with the limbic system as well, because it taps into your emotion, it's why we are able to process things so well when we listen to music. People already do this when they're going through a breakup. You know, they'll listen to music and cry for days. But that actually helps them release and deal with the situation, right? And we do this when we're angry. We do this when we're stressed. We do this when we need to focus and work out. And it has everything to do with the limbic system and how it makes us feel and how it motivates us and um, how it activates our brain. I just find that super fascinating. When you say you worked with some of the most sophisticated neural networks, like what, what, are you, what are you referring to there exactly? So that's a type of machine learning, and that's basically an algorithm to be able to analyze, assess, or uh, do a bunch of different things. At the time, I could see that streaming was going to be the future of music listening. There was a rapid shift and it made sense that the technology was moving in that direction. But I also knew from working in the music industry that all the information that is associated to a song has been created for marketing and sales purposes, not for an algorithm to recommend music. So there was going to be this tremendous amount of um, what we like to talk about with algorithms is uh, or data is if you put shit in, you get shit out. And with algorithms, particularly when you're talking about huge amounts of data, that's more true than ever. And anyway, so I could see that that was going to be a major problem in terms of, you know, what genre does this song belong to? Uh, what kind of tags should we add for that to be able to get people to search for it? That was going to be very complicated. So I worked on a system that could analyze audio and that could then create metadata tags that were descriptive enough to be able to search for music, but the analysis itself would be similar to the way our brain listens to and processes audio. Because my whole thing was the way we listen to audio is pretty unique a system is not going to be able to replicate that in the current models. So how do we change that? And I ended up building something called the um, the AI Music Brain. And that allowed us to use an algorithm to listen to a song, break it up into segments, classify what genre it belonged to, and create a, uh, a thing that we call vibe. So what is the vibe of the song? And there's a bunch of different parameters I get into that. But that is a neural network, and that system is built. So if I throw a million songs into that tomorrow, after a couple of hours, it will spit out all these results for those millions of songs and say, this song belongs in this genre, this is the vibe, this is the BPM, and this is the category of that song. Now it's easy for you to find it in the database. So that was the starting point. And what, what's the plan? What do you actually want to do with this technology once you've finished developing it? Well, this evolved into then uh, what's now become Music Health. And there it's very much just my life experience with music and what I've seen in my profession for two decades. And it's using all of these tools and enhancing the value of music as a therapy and building music therapy tools of all kinds to improve brain health. We know it works. There's tons of research out there that shows the positive impact music has on the brain. But knowing what and uh, when to play which type of music is the tricky part. So we're building the tools to say, okay, if somebody's dealing with Parkinson's, then this is the type of music they should be listening to to help them with coordination and movement. If somebody is living with dementia, then they have different needs for the music, which is all about triggering their memory to activate the brain. 
Um, if it's a child with autism, then it's all about helping them express themselves and also focus, which again is a different type of music for that individual uh, based on their needs. And then you layer on top of that everyone's individual music taste. So it gets quite complex and the idea is to build a system to make all of that super easy so that we can just start using music as a therapy in our daily routine. And your company is about to undertake the biggest chunk of research on patients with Alzheimer's with Oxford University. What's the, what's the plan there? Yeah, there's going to be quite a bit of research going on. Uh, that there in particular is talking about personalized music therapy intervention and how we can use this tool to support caregivers. So without going too deep into it, but with dementia, one of the big problems is uh, there's mood and behavior changes that happen when you have dementia. And as you can imagine, a caregiver interacting with somebody with dementia who doesn't recognize them and feels unsafe causes moments of high friction and tension. And we would all react the same way, but if I don't recognize you and you say, good morning, Nick, um, I'm going to need to take your clothes off now and bathe you. That's a very confronting moment when you don't know what's going on. So now with our tools, uh, the caregiver can play music. And so the person is more aware, cognizant of what's going on. They potentially even recognize the caregiver so that when they say then, okay, we're going to bathe you now, they go, oh, yes, we did this yesterday. I remember. I feel safe. Okay, we can do this again. And it's just removing the stress out of the situation because that is ongoing and it's every day. And it's, it's horrible for the person living with the dementia, but it's equally as stressful and uncomfortable for the caregiver because they're just continuously met with resistance uh, with somebody who might feel agitated or uncomfortable. So that's what we started with. Um, obviously, there's a lot more there. And with the research, what we're measuring is... What impact does this have if we use this every day versus, uh, you know, more traditional music therapy, which is a session a week? What if we use this every day in the interactions between the caregiver and the patient? What results will that bring? How much easier will it be for the caregiver to care for somebody? Because unfortunately, more and more people are getting dementia, but there are less and less or fewer caregivers to be able to care for them. So we need to make sure they have better tools to be able to do the job by themselves. Because 20 years from now, the reality is that most of the caregivers are going to be family members doing this at home by themselves. So let's give them the tools to make it just that little bit easier. So long-term plan, once Oxford University starts that research, like what will you do with the results? I mean, I guess that depends on the results. But in theory, this will then be, I guess, the data used and processed to go into your music therapy program? Yeah, so we already get results from the partners that we work with, care homes and caregivers, and we can see that we are reducing the incidence rate already by about 50%. So that means, uh, you know, if I use me as an example, uh, you know, let's imagine I'm in a care home, I have dementia, and at the moment... I have a mood behavior change every day. I get agitated and that leads to an incidence where I either try and hit somebody or I hurt myself. That can be quite common. Now because of this, we're already seeing a drop of 50% in care homes, which is significant. But we want to see this in a clinical setting and make sure that it's replicable, it's scalable, and it is applicable to everyone, not just one person or ten and so that's what this research is about uh, how do we build a tool that any caregiver can use without prior training and then what impact does that have on their stress levels uh, which is significant one of the biggest problems in aged care now is being able to recruit the right stuff because as it becomes more and more stressful less and less people want to work there uh, but for the person with dementia how can we give them a better quality of life how can we ensure that they are comfortable, more aware, and that their brain is being stimulated constantly versus sitting in a chair, feeling scared, alone, frail, whatever the situation might be. So we think there's some uh, major impact that can be had. And the idea of the outcomes of the research is 
if we can also demonstrate that this can significantly reduce the cost of care, which is tremendous, it's clocking in at $1.5 trillion a year, then that is a wake-up call for the governments to start implementing music and the arts in general uh, more broadly on a national scale. Yeah, you say you say about different kinds of music, you know, doing th- different things to the brain, but you mentioned in your talk specifically about different kinds of music giving the brain like a workout, essentially. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, that's just something over the years um, I worked on, which it's always good to give an example of context that people understand. Uh, we all understand physical activity, exercise, and we all understand why it benefits us now. Uh, It's harder to understand with music because it all happens up here in the brain. But just like physical activity, there are different types of music listening that you can enjoy that will have a different sort of um, impact on your brain. So the examples I gave in the talk, uh, there's three of them. One is listening to relaxing music. Researchers have known this for years, but it's in the title already. Listening to relaxing music is relaxing for us. It helps us de-stress and it helps us focus. And in terms of brain activity and stimulation, it's on par, similar to going for a little walk somewhere uh, or doing some light stretching. You know, it does get the endorphins going. It's good for you, but it's not super complex. So you can sort of zone out while you do it. Uh, And it's proven to just be very beneficial. Then you have listening to your favorite music, and that should be everyone's go-to anyway, because it's just, it makes us happy. Uh, But when we listen to our favorite music, it promotes feelings of joy and motivation. It's the same. Athletes have been doing this for years. They listen to their favorite music that pumps them up because it allows them to go a little bit further, a little bit faster, a little bit better than what they're doing. Um, It promotes feelings of joy and motivation, but research has found that it also helps us increase our dopamine levels, which is a pleasure uh, neurochemical, but dopamine is also good for other things because it is a messaging service between the body and the brain. Uh, But interestingly, they also found that it increases the blood flow in the brain uh, when we listen to music that we love. Obviously, it does much more than that. This also reduces cortisol, which is our stress hormone, Uh, But it's just really beneficial for us. And then finally, we have listening to complex music. And the examples that I gave in the talk are like, you can think of free jazz. uh, You can even think of certain types of drum and bass. uh, But also certain types of classical music or playing a musical instrument. And complex music is a total brain workout. It's full on. You can actually get tired from it after a while. Uh, because it's just constant processing but the rewards for that are great and there was famously many years ago there was a study um, called the Mozart effect if I am not mistaken and the tagline was listening to classical music makes your children more intelligent it all stems from the same thing but what they actually found is people don't get more intelligent from listening to music but their brain's ability to process more complex information becomes a lot better. So because we're training our brain to do really complex stuff, when we're then learning a new language or trying to solve really complex math problems, it's easier for the brain to process. So we're able to retain information better and a bunch of other things. So when we play a musical instrument or listen to complex music, our brain is growing it's creating neurons it's firing on all cylinders basically and it helps with neuroplasticity and for many years scientists thought that as we get older our brain just sort of shuts down that's not true what happens is that as we get older the majority of people start doing less and less and less so the brain gets less stimulation but if they keep stimulated then they are still able to learn new things, create new pathways in the brain, neuroplasticity, and uh, remain brain fit, if you will. Mm. And music is just a really wonderful, natural way of doing that. How many hours a day do you spend listening to music with all this knowledge? 
Me personally, quite a lot. I would say I spend at least two hours a day listening to music every day. If it's less, it's because I'm on calls or in meetings that I can't physically listen to music. But other days that I'm sort of in the zone writing or doing other stuff, then I'd listen to more music than that. But again, there's the background music. That's just music to have on to drown out the negative sounds in my environment, like traffic and things like that. And then there's the intentional listening to put me in a better mood, to help me de-stress, uh, to get me pumped up. So, for example, in the afternoon, I've got this new routine this year that <laughs> every day in the afternoon, I block out two hours to do some kind of exercise, even if it's just going for a walk. But no phone calls, no meetings. It's me time. And that always involves music. If I go for a run, I... I can't run without music. I don't know about you, but I find it tremendously boring if I don't have music to run. Uh, and any other kind of exercise I do as well. So at least two hours. In most cases, I'd say it's probably closer to four. And what what do you listen to? Bit of everything. Depends on the time of day. I usually, when I wake up and work from home, I will start off with some relaxing music or something mellow to get the day started, get me in the routine, and again, drown out the noise around me. As I build up the day, I'll have things with more melodies, more vocals. In the afternoon, I will have high-energy music that I love. Uh, a go-to track for me is Nas, Get Down. That pumps me up always. And even, you know, the day of the TED Talk, I had that on. Uh, but Aretha Franklin, Say a Little Prayer, that's a song that just makes me happy any day. So in the afternoon, if I'm feeling a little bit tired or a little bit down, the tendency is to go for a coffee. I put on music that I love for 10 minutes, and then I'm ready to go. It works every time. It's funny you should say that because I saw you uh, with your headphones on backstage listening to music and, and Holiday did the exact same and I, I never got round to asking her what it was that she was listening to right before she went on stage but she came down in the zone and she was kind of like, yeah, rocking and bopping in her chair and I was like, hmm, it looks like rap. I couldn't be sure but I was, I was yeah, intrigued. Yeah, we, we obviously talked about music on the day because uh, that's how we both like to get into the zone. Uh, there was definitely some hip-hop in there, I know, she told me. Uh, she can share with you what songs they were, but I know that one of her go-tos is also Beyonce. And yeah, at, at one point we crossed paths, we were standing, I think, on the terrace outside, and we walked past each other while we were bopping our heads, listening to hip-hop, and just gave each other a smile like, yeah, cool, see you later, and uh, kept walking in our groove. You know, it works. It's that's why it's there. We we both felt energized having that on five minutes before we do our talk to just go out there and crush it. <laughs> you crushed it. You both crushed it. There's no doubt in my mind about that. It's funny because when I was um, teaching a lot of yoga. Um, couple of years ago I was you know listening to nothing but music all day long putting together playlists for the class and sequencing things and choreographing them you know to the music and and I don't really do that so much anymore I mean the place I listen to the most music is in the morning in the gym you know again as you say doing exercise for me is non-negotiable without a soundtrack to go with it um, but you know that's where I craft you know, all, every month I make a new playlist and I kind of put my tracks or discoveries and I feel like the technology of Spotify is pretty good. I mean, there's some obviously some, you know, bits of tech that can suggest music that you're going to like. But I, I must say, I do feel like Spotify is pretty good at doing that. And um, I don't know if there's any um, knowledge that you have to offer about how it how it can do that, how it can suggest tracks that aren't necessarily completely similar, but it just seems to know what n organically leads on from the, the playlist you've already created. Because I've often made a playlist and then what comes after that when it ends can go on for hours and it's just like oh my god i've left it on because it's just so good yeah that's well that's a very interesting topic for me to talk about uh and that's a whole nother podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh because there's pros and cons now i use all the streaming services myself i love them as tools uh but i do the heavy lifting to find the right music mm. 
the one thing that the streaming services do incredibly well is again it's a it's a machine learning method it's called collaborative filtering and that is basically uh, looking at what you listen to and then looking at other users that listen to similar things and then creating a pattern and this is oversimplifying it but if you and I listen to nine of the same songs and then there's a tenth song that I've listened to that you haven't that will be part of your recommendation at some point that's the simplified version of explaining that they obviously do this with millions of users so there's times that that can feel like oh wow that's amazing but that's because you've listened to a hundred songs that were the same as mine so the downside of that is um, this gets really nerdy but we we get a problem of extrapolation uh, and interpolation now I won't get too technical with all of this but it means the more we look at other people for recommendations the less new music we recommend uh, there's obviously been reports out just recently about the lack of music being streamed on streaming services it, this is a problem that I that's why I started my first company because I could see that that would be a problem in the future and what happens is our view of the music gets more narrow and narrow as we go on because we as users are not able to find what's out there because it's too much and we can't search for it and whatever appears in the search is what people have already listened to so we get this vicious circle of just spiraling down to less and less music so having said that I I feel you there's moments that I put music on and I can have it on for hours and it just it flows it works there's other days where I have to curate all of it to be right for what I need the one downside with curated playlists that they have is when something says deep focus um, but it isn't then what do you do you have to then go off and find stuff and my favorite example of that is I, I did a theme birthday party recently and uh, we had a Caribbean theme because I had just come back from the Caribbean <laughs> and um, so you know I searched for Caribbean well that was tricky like it was everything but Caribbean music it was tropical it was definitely music for in the sunshine but it wasn't Caribbean and that's that's where you get the problem with tags and curation so they have great systems, great services. Are they perfect? No. Is the problem going to get bigger? Yes, because more and more music is released on a daily basis. So other types of systems are required. One of the things we did with the music therapy is focusing initially on what your music taste is as an individual user and then making sure that we know every single song in the catalog that we have access to, which ones of those fit for you and which ones don't as a starting point and we use a much wider range of music with a music therapy tool because of that um, and I think that's using the DJing as an analogy again as a DJ you have to be very good every DJ that I know has a formula for how many songs they play that they know the crowd knows versus new songs if they just play a set of new songs they're not going to get the people to dance so there's always a delicate balance and the best DJs they know that you know they'll play one two three songs that you know and then they'll play a four song that you've never heard of before because it's brand new but it fits with the vibe vibe I talk about vibe a lot that is the key to a good music experience and the vibe has to do with the vibe of the music but also the vibe you're in if you're in a really foul mood your reaction to don't worry be happy might be very different than when you're in a really happy mood and understanding that allows us to then understand what music we need to be listening to if that makes sense it, it does actually it's very interesting and um, it does explain a lot but I think yeah I remember I remember interviewing Daniel Eck from Spotify like literally when it first first launched maybe 15 years ago and I was working as a music journalist and living in Brighton I used to go to the Great Escape Festival every single year without fail and that's where you know when it become a little bit more kind of about the music industry and not just gigs and music and bands 
and um, that is when I and I had that chat to him and I was I was really really fascinated because I got free membership to Spotify for about pff, five years after that conversation because I had a I had a radio show and I was using Spotify to find new music but I you know looking back on it when when we talk about how do you find new music then and and everybody has Spotify now pretty much um I find that quite interesting it's like well how do you find good music and you know going to a festival like for example the great escape is not something I can really do anymore because I'm over here unless I flew back for it specifically but that would be where you know I would see new bands for the very first time and discover music and I think you know places like Ibiza of course if you're into electronic music it's great but I'm not having access to gigs on a regular basis to go and check out new bands you know left right and center it's 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 very hard I think in this space that's probably the one biggest thing I feel starved of and I don't find it that easy to find new music so that's quite an interesting topic of conversation for for me because I think yeah how do you find where is a good place to look for good new music yeah that's the million dollar question because the upside of algorithms is they give us access to everything the downside is because of the algorithms they show you what they want to show you first and it's the same with google you search for something is that all the results for what you're searching for no and is there an order that works for you no it's the order that they've determined is the best for you to view that um so it's it's incredibly tricky to do that and with music even more because you know if you say well i really feel like listening to blues well what does blues mean for you versus me Blues is perhaps a bad example because everyone has a pretty good idea of what blues means, but with genres in general, we all have our own associations to that. An algorithm, though, needs to be very clear, needs to be very black and white, what is what, to be able to find things quickly. There can then be overlap with other things, but there needs to be a structure. Right now, we have music catalogs and streaming services that have thousands and thousands of genre tags that make no sense. Indie funk goth rock. What does that mean to you? I don't know what that means to me, and I don't know one artist that could potentially fit in that category or song. That's where it becomes very challenging. Uh, you know, growing up, we we found new music because of our friends and family, and then MTV or TV shows like that, right? MySpace. MySpace, exactly. So that has shifted, but. The downside with that, again, is we're all also a little bit lazy. And so the idea of following others and then, you know, what about this track, that track? You just want to go there. When you open up the app, you want to listen to music. You don't want to be searching. So we tend to always revert to the standard because it's easier. Uh, and it's very frustrating. There's days that I will spend an hour trying to find the right music and I can't and then I just switch it off and then I come back and listen to something that I've always listened to so yeah it's again this is a topic we could talk about for days and days and days streaming services know it's an issue they don't necessarily have an answer for how to resolve it and the other question is what's good music versus bad music you know that's incredibly tricky I have this just as a side note this theory that I wrote about years ago if you think of all music as 100%, the top 5% is the music that you love, potentially, maybe even less. So those guilty pleasures that we talk about. 80% is music that you're just happy with. It works as background, as filler, if you will. And then the rest is just poorly produced music, let's say. Now more than ever, we have so much music that sits in that middle bit that we could just listen to but we will it's not memorable doesn't mean it's bad music it's great music but we listen to it we don't know the artist we don't know the track name if it doesn't appear in our recommendation again we're never going to hear it again but I think that presents itself with an opportunity as well and the way we love music is by repetition because that's how our brain gets you know really excited about something so yeah I digress there's uh these are things I think about every day in this brain. How do we solve these problems with music? And how do we enhance the value of music? Because now anyone can release it. 
how do we do quality control and how do we make sure that we have the right music for each individual it's it's a very tricky thing it's the same as podcasting there's so many awful awful podcasts out there and anybody can put one out and then it just crowds the space and makes the good ones impossible to find and then how do you find a good podcast without it being recommended to you either by someone or going on to a platform and then something is being recommended or highlighted or showcased or you know kind of shoved in your face by again the algorithm and I, I don't yeah I find for me that's equally as frustrating I've got the same problem but with a different <laughs> a different 100%. kind of audio yeah. um I, I you know I'd love to hear more you know about this topic but I don't think we've really got time I would like to end because we're almost at the end, um, on Richard Branson and when you went to Necker Island. I mean, I'm sure lots of people would like to know what that experience was like and how it went down and how it came about. Yeah, that was a, a fun experience, definitely. It um, How it came about is probably the, the funnest part of this because I, from all people, <laughs> got a message from my accountant. It's... It's very sexy, I know. I got a message from my accountant who said, somebody is going to call you in 10 minutes, answer the phone and say yes. Now, I don't know about your accountant, but, you know, that's kind of, okay. I don't know what that means, but sure. It's a guy I've known for many years and I trust him. So, you know, okay, of course. Uh, Anyway, so I got a call from somebody who explained that they were invited to Necker Island to this event and whether I would like to also go because the work I was doing was interesting and uh, it's all about impact. Uh, And I said, wow, yeah, that sounds really cool. Uh, I had to check that the dates worked and they did. And then I had to do an interview with the person that uh, organizes this event, a very lovely lady called Fiona. And had the interview, I obviously passed because I ended up going there. Uh, And then it was a week uh, getting together with like-minded people on Necker Island and with Richard Branson. He lives there most of the year when he can, when he's not traveling for work with his wife. And we, this was organized so that every morning we would have breakfast together. He would join us. We would all have a chat about things. And then we'd have two or three hours of workshops together talking about impact and how do we how can we change the world the idea was if you put 30 individuals together from all walks of life doing different things on impact they should be able to create some pretty great ideas together and uh, so it was really stimulating conversations which for any entrepreneur that is exciting because unfortunately you don't get them enough. When you're an entrepreneur, you inherently, you think differently about things and finding other people to be able to talk about strange topics is challenging. So it's very, very stimulating. And uh, again, I think I have lifelong friends from that week in the Caribbean. Uh, Anyway, after the workshops, all have lunch together and then we'd have a day of activities. It's on an island. So there's lots of things to do in the water. And then we'd have dinner with Richard most nights as well and have a chat with him. And uh, we did a couple of evenings where we got to ask him a bunch of questions and talk about life. And it was very laid back and really stimulating and inspiring. For me, having the journey I had, I, I would consider myself in the third phase of my professional journey. My first phase, I started incredibly young. And then the second phase, I was trying to figure out a whole bunch of stuff. And the third phase, I feel like I've been able to put all of that together and accelerate my learnings and new things. There were some people there that were mid-20s that are literally changing the world. And we all got along very well, and it was very stimulating conversations. But just having conversations with them about how they manage their lives was for me super fascinating and uh, that also got me to think about you know what are the things that I want to change in my life and how do I want to live my life 
if I'm spending all of my energy on, in my way, changing the world, am I making sure that I'm living my life the way that I'm 100% happy? Because it requires a lot of energy. So, yeah, that's the long and the short of it. A beautiful, beautiful island and resort. It's all, um, it's off-grid and eco. So I got a tour of the island to learn about the solar panels, the windmills, because, yeah, I'm a nerd. And I was just blown away about the setup. And they have an incredible team of people that work there day in and day out. And it was just really awesome spending time with them and learning more about their life and how they go about managing this place, which is... When I was there, I asked this, because, again, I'm curious. This place is fully booked years in advance all year round it's a very well oiled machine and rightfully so because it's spectacular so being able to spend that time there was mind-blowing it was a massive come down when i left that trip back was hard uh also because you know some people fly in different uh, styles <laughs> Here's me and my economy flight across uh, the U.S. and then to Australia. It was a hell of a journey, um, but it was really cool. And yeah, look, I got invited back again this year, which I was incredibly honored. Uh, unfortunately, this year I can't go. Absolutely gutted, but, you know, sometimes we have to do other things. Can I go and pretend to be Nick Johnson? <laughs> I'll, I'll put in a good word and see what we can do. But I, I genuinely hope that I can go again the following year because it's, it's something that I'd l definitely want to repeat. What was the number one lesson you took away from somebody you met there that told you something about the way they manage their life? Uh, I think it was really just about restraints. I, for many years, I put pressure on myself that I had to live in a certain way to be able to do what I do. And it's just not true. The only person that's putting those restrictions on me is me. And so, as an example, there was one couple that don't really live anywhere fixed. They just travel around and go to wherever they want to go and do their work uh, remote. And it works really well for them. And there's another person that just really is into their lifestyle. And they prioritize that to be the best they can be with work. So, you know, that's lots of trips to do things that they love. Hiking, skiing, uh, all kinds of sports. So their work-life balance is very different to what I was allowing myself to have. Mm -hmm. And so for me, already before I went on that trip, our company, Music Health, we implemented a four-day work week for our team. Uh, it's something that I've always done for myself. And we just felt that that was something we had to do it felt natural but then on top of that this year i also started implementing small changes like i don't do calls between this and this time because that's time with my family mm -hmm. uh, i don't i block this amount of time per day to do exercise otherwise there's always an excuse i have to do this i have to do that and by finding more time to not do work i find i'm way more efficient with my work mm. and that's something I learned from having <laughs> very deep conversations with a 26-year-old and a 25-year-old while playing chess on Necker Island. Happy days. I mean, that's just kind of, yeah, amazing. And I think, you know, that's just an intriguing development also specifically in the last few years from being able to be more remote in general. Um, and I think the opportunity or the land of opportunity is just, you know, opened a lot more doors in this world which is kind of exciting it's a it's a exciting time to be alive nick johnson it definitely is i concur <laughs> do you think leaving uh, the tedx family bubble is going to be just as much of a come down i to be honest with you i already kind of feel definitely something there because i feel that the group of people that i was with very intensely for a week was very special and uh, I genuinely hope that I will continue to see a lot of these people again and maintain relationships. I think it was just um, a good group of humans. And 
if you know anything about me, I am very easy to point out when I don't like humans. <laughs> and so I find it extra special when I connect with a whole group of very good humans. I, I just love that. So I'm sure there'll be contemplation on the plane back to Sydney just because it's a long flight. So there's a lot of time to think. But I think in this case, it's it's very much just positive and again, inspiring to go. There's connections with people here where I get to talk about completely different things that inspire me. And that's exciting. Mm. Well, we'll see you back here for your 40th birthday this year, which I'm very excited about. And um, thank you so much for joining me on my front porch. I'm very glad the sun's gone in because it was about 100 degrees about 20 minutes ago and the sun was directly on us. And we're both sitting here wearing black yet again. Ibiza podcast. Say no more. Perfect spot. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We'll see you again. Coming to you every day.